0: Well, as most of you know, um, this is technically my last message as guest speaker, Um, so I'm looking forward for sure to seeing how the Lord will grow us all together um, as we move forward. Now, it is because we're about to start this new chapter together that I wanted to focus upon the Word of God itself this morning. Most of you have heard enough of my message to know how closely I try to stick to Scripture, and there is good reason for that. You see, I know that the greatest value that I can bring to Western Avenue Baptist Church is to elevate God and his word and then to get myself out of the way. It's like what John the Baptist said about Jesus Christ in John 3.30. He must increase, but I must decrease. Our goal as believers is to share the gospel with the lost and to grow together um, in Christ as a church. But all that is contingent. Upon the word of God is our basis of God's wisdom. All of that goes by the wayside if we start to compromise on God's truth or get in its way, trying to make it say something other than what it really says. Now, those are simple enough goals, but the execution is often hard. Why? Because we live in a fallen world, do we not? And we are surrounded and inundated in spiritual warfare, and often we don't even realize it. You see, Satan is at work in the world. He is indeed the prince of the power of the air. He is the great deceiver. And his goal has been singularly focused upon sowing seeds of doubt and confusion regarding God and his word. From the very beginning, it was Satan who whispered into Eve's ear, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? It was Satan who told God about Job, You put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. It was Satan who attempted to use Peter as an obstacle to Jesus Christ. When Jesus had to rebuke him, saying, get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And even to the end, it is Satan who is described in the book of Revelation as the one who accuses the brethren before God day and night. And some of Satan's deceptions is not only in what he does, but it's in how he does it. You see, the apostle Paul warned against false apostles and said this to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen 13 through 15. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Did you catch that? Satan is not interested in a full frontal attack. He's not coming in some silly red outfit with a tail and a a pitchfork. Again, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. What that means is that Satan operates from the inside. He looks like you. He looks like me. He also operates through our fallen world, through our culture, the evil world systems. Beloved, don't make the mistake of thinking that you're wiser than Satan. Don't think for a moment that you can battle him or outsmart him with complete, without complete reliance upon anything other than God and his word. The great theologian and pastor A.W. Tozer said, the devil is a better theologian than any of us and is a devil still. Thus, it was no coincidence that during the temptation of our Lord Jesus Christ that Satan would tempt Jesus by twisting the scriptures. And it was also no coincidence that Jesus' first defense against Satan's attack was to say, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now, Jesus had the power to summon a legion of armies against Satan, but instead he resorted to Scripture. Why did he do that? Well, because he came not only to offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins, but to be an example to us in how we are to walk, in how we are to engage this spiritual war. And beloved, my goal for this church, which does not belong to me, but to our Lord Jesus Christ, my my goal for this church is firmly to implant the word of God into your hearts and minds. And I do want to do that by teaching and preaching the word of God to you week after week, month after month, year after year, and Lord willing, decade after decade. But I can't do it alone. Obviously, I need the Lord's blessings upon me to do that clearly and faithfully. But I also need each of you to commit to growing in the Lord, according to his wisdom, and not yours or anyone else's. And if you've already been doing this, then I say excel still more. But if you've neglected to study the word of God as you ought to have, and believe me, I've been there multiple times throughout the course of my Christian life. Let now be the time that you push that reset button. Let now be the time that you redevote yourself to the Word of God and to understanding His will. That's why this morning I want to incline your hearts and minds towards God's Word as a way of life. I want to do that by having us focus our attention upon what the Word of God says about the Word of God, why it's valuable, why it matters so much and when it comes to god's word clearly there are many ways i can describe it there are many characteristics of god's word that are worth understanding but there are three in particular three that in my mind stand above the rest which are particularly crucial to protect you from going astray to protect you from the attacks of satan and the world so with that introduction my purpose this morning is to firmly establish the immeasurable value of God's Word, so that you may be steadfast and untangled in your devotion to walk in it. Steadfast meaning patient, you are consistent, that you are long-suffering through it, though studying the Word of God should not be suffering to us, but untangled in that you are, you are free from any of the clutter of noise that comes from around us. And I'm going to do that by highlighting three truths of God's word that proves its immeasurable value, starting with God's word is absolutely perfect. God's word is absolutely perfect. Sometimes we refer to this as inerrancy. Now, I want to draw your attention first to the book of Joshua. So if you can turn with me to the book of Joshua, that would be book number six in the Old Testament. After you get past the five books of Moses, you get to Joshua and turn to Joshua chapter one. Now, why Joshua? Well, its location in the Old Testament is very important. As I mentioned, it's the sixth book of the Old Testament located right after the first five books of Moses, right after the establishment of the law or what the Jews called the Torah. This law was the foundation of the Old Testament and a guide that would ultimately lead many of us to Christ. But take a look at Joshua chapter one and specifically look at verse six. This is really the first time that the Lord is directly addressing Joshua. And what he says here in verse six is gonna give us a strong contextual clue as to what's going on. He says, be strong and courageous for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. You see, God had delivered the Israelites from Egypt with the intention of bringing them into this promised land as a fulfillment to God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What we often refer to as the Abrahamic covenant. But originally to the Jews, it looked like it would be Moses that would lead the Israelites into the promised land. After all, it was Moses who led them out of Egypt. It was Moses who had received the the, the law and provided that to the people. But when you read those books, those Mosaic books, and especially the book of Numbers and then Deuteronomy, you find that Moses had sinned against God. He had struck a rock in order to bring out water for the people, but he did so in a way that was dishonoring to the Lord in terms of his his attitude and his demeanor. So the Lord had prevented him from moving on, and his successor instead would be Joshua. Now, why Joshua? Well, Joshua had proven to be a faithful man of God. He was serving Moses when the Israelites had created the golden calf, so he was not involved in that sin. He had urged Israel's obedience the first time they approached the promised land. Moses had sent 12 spies into the promised land, and they all came back fearful of the people who were there, except for two people, Joshua and Caleb. And despite his faithfulness, Joshua would have to wander around in the wilderness with the rest of the sinful Israelites for 40 years while that first generation coming out of Egypt were being judged. So if there was ever a man you could trust to be faithful to God at this point in history, it was Joshua. If there was ever a man who perhaps didn't need further instruction, it would have been Joshua. But continue on. Look at what the Lord says in verses 7 and 8. Verse 7 reads, only be strong and very courageous. And listen to this. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. You see, Joshua was urged to meditate upon God's word. How often? Verse 8 says, day and night why well according to this verse he was to meditate on a day and night so that he may be careful to follow it completely and if he followed it completely what would be the result that he would be successful and prosperous in what he had been called to do so even a man as proven as steadfast and as faithful as joshua Could only guarantee his own success by meditating upon God's word and being careful to do everything written in it. And he can't do that unless the written law could be guaranteed to be perfect, right? I mean, if this law is imperfect, then why meditate upon it day and night and be careful to do all that's written according to it? I mean, of course, we know that this idea that God's word is perfect or inerrant would be mocked by unbelievers. We know that. We expect that unbelievers will often point out how many different human authors there were in writing the bible they'll talk about how there were so many contradictions throughout the bible they'll say it's not possible that the bible we have today is the same one that was originally written they'll say the bible was a tool of the catholic church to bring about the inquisition and the execution of many who could not follow or would not follow christ they'll say that the biblical storylines came from other ancient near eastern religions that existed before the Word of God. If you defend these scriptures long enough to non-believers, you'll hear these reasons raised sooner or later, and you'll hear them repeatedly. This is not shocking. What is heartbreaking is how many so-called Christian institutions have bought into these false narratives. Over the years, there have been what's called the quest for the historical Jesus. This has spanned multiple centuries, going at, but recently, back in the 1980s and 90s, there were a group of Bible scholars who got together, and they went through the gospel accounts of Jesus Christ. And I kid you not, as they went through each account in the gospels, they would vote on what they thought was really true and what didn't happen. They would literally just vote, no, that didn't happen. Yes, that did happen. Many of the miracles of Jesus Christ would be rejected. His harsh words of condemnation would be rejected. And what you were left with was a very small subset of the Gospels that was considered truly historical. It was not based upon any real evidence. They didn't make their decisions on real evidence. They just made their decisions based upon what they thought sounded right or not. Today, in one of the biggest seminaries in California, located very close to my former workplace, they have professors teaching that the Gospel according to Paul was different than the Gospel according to Peter. There was another well-known Bible scholar on the East Coast who recently stated that one of the purposes of the book of Matthew was to expose Peter as a heretic. I mean, this is amazing. Clearly, these were not Bible scholars who upheld the inerrancy of God's word. Clearly, they did not believe God's word was perfect. But recently, even those who would say that the word of God is perfect would then in very subtle ways undermine its inerrancy. It's not all that different than those scholars, what those scholars would do, the ones I just described, except they would simply label certain events as being literal events and other events being symbolic events. For instance, the creation account is really not a literal event. It's really symbolic of what has happened over millions and billions and trillions of years. The fall of man in the Garden of Eden was not a literal event, but it was symbolic of of how sin entered the world. After Jesus was crucified, the book of Matthew stated that many came out of their tombs and went to the people in Jerusalem. Oh, no, but that too must have been symbolic. Some will say that some of the letters from Paul and Peter were not really written from Paul and Peter, but they were written from disciples of these individuals, which would help explain some of the development in their thinking. Recently, one of the biggest names amongst female teachers, Beth Moore, revealed that she had been preaching to men on Sundays, and this is strictly forbidden by Paul in his first letter to Timothy. But she also tweeted this to a well-known professor of biblical studies. She said this, we put limitations on women that exceeded what Christ demonstrated. We did it instead of wrestling with the tension between the gospels and the epistles. In other words, the gospel accounts and the letters written by Paul Have contradictions and we haven't wrestled with that. And really what this reminds me of is that serpent in the Garden of Eden asking Eve, has God really said? So from the beginning, Satan has questioned God's words. He has been very subtly calling God a liar. He appealed to Eve to focus on her own desires rather than obey God's word. That's why these words to Joshua are so important. Once again, verse 7, Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. You shall meditate on it. In verse 8, you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have success. And in addition to Joshua, we have many other verses that affirm the perfection of God's word. We already read to you Matthew 4, 4 earlier when Jesus told Satan, man shall not live on bread alone, but on what? Every word to, that proceeds out of the mouth of God. It's not just some of the words. It's every word. But I also love what Paul instructed Timothy. In fact, you have this verse on the cover of your bulletin this morning, so you can just look at the cover of the bulletin. Look at it either there or in your Bible. 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul writes, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. You want to be approved by God? I certainly do. Don't you? We all want to be approved by God, right? You want to stand before God without being ashamed, right? Of course, that, that would be true for all of us. You know how to do that? This verse tells us, I mean, take a look at it again. It says, be diligent. Be diligent to do what? Well, at the end, it says to to accurately handle the word of truth. So it calls us to be diligent. Well, what does it mean for us to be diligent? Well, the Greek word here, it means to be zealous or eager, to, to take pains, to make every effort, to be conscientious. In other words, this work doesn't come easy. We don't just skim through the Bible and say, "Okay, I got it. I understand it. You know, the idea is that we have to be zealous and eager. We have to take pains. We have to make every effort. We need to be conscientious as we come to the word of God. But what is it that we're to be diligent about? What is it that we have to do? Well, according to this verse, we are to be diligent about accurately handling the word of truth. But do you realize what accuracy implies? If Timothy is expected to be accurate about the word of truth, guess what? The word of truth must really be the word of truth. Otherwise, if the word of truth is anything other than the word of truth, if it is an imperfect copy, if there are a lot of mistakes, then how can Timothy be assured of handling it accurately? And the result is that when you handle the word of God accurately, you will be approved. You won't be ashamed. Is that any good? Yeah, absolutely. So we see from these verses the clear implication that Scripture is perfect, that we are to study it and meditate upon it. But don't we also glean other important truths from outside of God's Word? Some people ask, well, isn't all truth God's truth? What about our experiences? What about what we may believe the Lord has revealed to us directly? Well, what about things like science and other areas of study? Well, that brings me to the second truth of God's word that proves its immeasurable value. The first is God's word is absolutely perfect. The second is that God's word is fully sufficient. God's word is fully sufficient. Now, if you're still in 2 Timothy, of course, we have to turn to chapter 3. Go to chapter 3. Chapter 3, starting in verse 14, from verse 14 to verse 17. We read this from Paul to Timothy. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from where, from whom, you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate." equipped for every good work so when we say that god's word is fully sufficient the obvious question is well sufficient for what and that would be a good question see god's word doesn't pretend to train you how to do your jobs in the workplace unless you're me god's word doesn't provide you with medical cures for physical ailments God's word is not a substitute for basic teaching and reading and arithmetic that our children must undergo in their early years. So then what is it sufficient for? Well, look again at verse 15. From childhood, you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So we would say that it is sufficient to bring a person to salvation. That explains why Jesus after his resurrection told his disciples this in Luke 24:27 Listen to this then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures That's Luke 24:27 That's also why Paul would remind the Corinthians of his own testimony to them when he first met them. Listen to this from 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 and 2. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing else among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. But going back to 2 Timothy 3, we see that the scriptures are not only sufficient for salvation, but also sanctification. And by sanctification, I'm talking about your spiritual growth in Christ. I'm talking about the ongoing transformation in which you're becoming more and more like the Son of God each and every day. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 to 17, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, For training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now, one of the attacks on this verse is that Paul and Timothy only had access to the Old Testament. So when Paul made this statement, he was only referring to the scripture that was of the Old Testament. And my response is no, it refers to all scripture, past, present, and future, from the standpoint of Paul. Let me give you an example. If I were to tell you that all babies are cute, am I only talking about babies in the past? Am I only talking about babies in the present? No, of course, that's a standard statement that covers all babies that will ever be born in the history of mankind. Past, present, and future. It's the same thing here. When Paul makes that statement, he's referring to all Scripture, everything that is breathed out by God. And additionally, you can write these references down because the claim that they only had the Old Testament is patently false. You can write these, um, these verses down. 1 Timothy 5:18, that's an earlier letter to Timothy. Paul actually quotes both Deuteronomy and the Gospel according to Luke as Scripture. Peter would later go on to equate Paul's writings in 2 Peter 3:15 and 16. 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, he would equate Paul's writings with Scripture. And then going back to the Gospel of John, John chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus had promised the apostles that the helper whom the Father would send, and we know that helper is the Holy Spirit, that this helper, the Holy Spirit, would teach them all things and bring to remembrance all that Jesus had taught. So that was already a promise from Jesus Christ to his apostles that the Holy Spirit, one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit, would to be to bring to their remembrance all that Jesus had taught and to bring to their minds everything else that is intended to be taught. So that was Jesus commissioning the writing of the New Testament. But 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 also tells us that all scripture is inspired. In fact, I like the ESV translation here because the ESV says, it doesn't say that it was inspired. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God. And the Greek is literally God-breathed, further emphasizing its source. But we find that it is profitable for the following. Look again at verses 16 and 17. Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate equipped for every good work now that's a lot of things that it is profitable for all of them needed and all of them necessary as part of our growth but the word adequate here sounds rather understated to us today we normally wouldn't use this in a positive way but the idea here is that the man of god is able he is sufficiently prepared he, he is made ready for the purpose that he was created for and ladies, don't let the reference to man of God fool you. This applies to women too, and husbands, fathers, as spiritual leaders, you're to ensure that you lead your family in this way, in this example. Now one more verse from First Thessalonians. So if you turn back a few books to the left, first and Second Thessalonians come right before First and Second Timothy, go to First Thessalonians chapter two. So just a couple of books to the left. You'll get to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. We read this word of thanksgiving from Paul regarding the Thessalonians. And look what he says, verse 13. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. Which also performs its work in you who believe. So we see here a clear distinction between the Word of God and the Word of men. And Paul was commending these Thessalonians for hearing what Paul shared, not as the Word of men, even though it was coming from Paul as a man, but they heard it as the Word of God. And knowing that Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles. This is referring back to their salvation. When he's writing them, he's saying, when I first came to you, you received the word as the word of God. This is talking about when he first shared the gospel with them. They heard the gospel and understood it to be from God. But look at the end of verse 13. And note that the word of God did not stop once they believed. The word of God was not simply just there to help them get saved. The word of God rather continues to perform its work in believers when he says, which also perform its work in you who believe. That is covering both salvation and sanctification. It is both sufficient to bring us to Christ and it is sufficient to to continue growing us in Christ once we are saved. But why is this important for us to remember? Because we live in a world today that has been inundated with so much garbage that is meant to muddy the word of God in our lives. We have pop psychology that is very man-centric, very focused upon our feelings and our needs and not about the will of God. We have the latest scientific theories, which are often not objective at all, but change from generation to generation. I mean, are we evolved from fish or are we evolved from monkeys or is there some common ancestor to all creatures? How old is, is, is all of creation in the universe? Is it billions? Is it trillions? It keeps growing age after age. And then we have the philosophies of men. The philosophies of men is nothing more than just religion centered around man's thinking. I mean, think back to to, to the Bible times. We don't see Jesus and his apostles commending the reading of Socrates, Plato, or Philo. No, only Scripture. But we also have our own personal experiences, which, which we must always measure against the Word of God. Paul said that he took every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's in 2 Corinthians 10, 5. 2 Corinthians 10, 5, when Paul said we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So as you grow in your knowledge of Scripture, constantly examine your own actions. Are they being informed by the word of God or are they being informed by something outside of his word? You'd be surprised at just how easy it is to allow unbiblical thinking to pass under the radar as being biblical. But as we consider again this verse from 1 Thessalonians 2.13, we also see divine authority, don't we? Because Paul says, you received what we said, not as the words of men, but as what? The words of God. You received them as the words of God. And that brings me to the third and final truth of God's word that proves its immeasurable value. The first was that God's word is absolutely perfect. The second is that God's word is fully sufficient. And third, God's word is divinely authoritative. God's word is divinely authoritative. Now, the greatest sermon ever preached had to have been the Sermon on the Mount by our Lord Jesus Christ. Turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 7. The Sermon on the Mount goes from Matthew chapters 5 through 7. It spans three chapters. We're going to take a look at the end of this sermon. So if you go to Matthew chapter 7, look at the end of the sermon starting in chapter 7, verse 24. Chapter 7, verse 24, we're going to read to the end of the chapter. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Now, I had mentioned earlier that both the Old Testament and the New Testament are considered scripture. And here's one of those evidences. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 reads, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. We see from here that the scriptures have authority. The words of Christ have authority We see that over and over again because he says everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them. He doesn't say everyone who hears simply the word of God from Scripture. He also includes himself, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them. And he pronounces both blessing and curse for those who acts on them and those who do not act on them. And even the crowd recognized at the end of this chapter that he was teaching them as one having authority. But turn with me to the end of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, and you will recognize the end of Matthew chapter 28, because that's where we receive the Great Commission. And when we think of the Great Commission, we often think of evangelism. We often think about sharing the gospel, and that's good. You should think about that, but it's a lot more than just that. There is a distinct call for discipleship, but also for teaching as well. Take a look at starting in verse 18, Matthew 28, verse 18. And once again, just to emphasize the authority of Jesus Christ, verse 18 says this, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So there's a distinct cause, I mentioned, for discipleship and for teaching. Look again at verse 20. He said, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. The Great Commission is not simply about just giving the gospel and having them believe and then turning your back and walking away. The Great Commission is about bringing the gospel, but also for those who believe, looking to disciple them and to teach them to observe, not just the word of God. I mean, that's true, but here saying, teaching them to observe all that I, being Jesus Christ, have commanded you. That is the authority of Jesus Christ and the word of God. And then, of course, we have the book of Hebrews. We find that the word of God possesses divine power. Listen to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You know, I hear so often people say to me, well, God knows my heart. God knows my heart. And they say it as if that's a good thing. It's not. Beloved, Scripture knows your heart better than you do. So before you go comforting yourself that God knows your heart, you better read Scripture to see what it is that God knows about your heart. Because oftentimes you'll find that it's not good. I mean, one of the blessings of Scripture for me in my life is that I see my own sinfulness all the time being revealed to me as I read these words. I recognize the ways in which I have failed to meet the standard of being Christ-like and the ways in which I need to repent and improve and, and grow. And this idea that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword should also bring to our minds back to the spiritual warfare I had mentioned earlier. You see, when you get to the end of the book of Ephesians, and and that's going to be the first book we walkthrough, by the way, starting um, in the middle of July, the book of Ephesians. When you get to the end of the book of Ephesians, Paul talks about spiritual warfare in the final chapter, Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. But he says this in verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Beloved, your weapon of spiritual warfare is none other than the word of God. And the word of God alone has the divine power and authority that you need to defend yourself against the evils of the world. This alone. Now, just a few more verses and I'll go ahead and conclude. Turn to Ephesians chapter four, verse one. Ephesians chapter four, verse one. This is. Actually, verse 11. Sorry about that. Ephesians 4, verse 11. This is an important set of verses for us as a church. In fact, at this point, if someone were to ask me to pinpoint a set of verses that I would use as a vision for the church, it might be right here in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 14. Uh, Let me walk you through this to help you understand what's going on here. Ephesians chapter 4, um, starting in verse 11, Paul writes this. And he, referring to Jesus, gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Now, what is that saying in verse 11? It's saying that Jesus Christ gave gift to the church, gifts to the church in the form of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers. Now, the apostles and the prophets were considered the foundation of the church. So that was for a limited time to establish the foundation. We no longer have prophets and apostles. We no longer need prophets and apostles. But we still have evangelists. We still have pastors. We still have teachers. But what is their purpose? Verse 12 says, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. You remember when we read earlier 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, it talked about how all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for for training and teaching and reproof and correction so that the man of God would be adequate, equipped for every good work. Here, verse 12 is saying that these these gifts to the church is for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. In other words, people like myself and some of the deacons who do teaching are here to help equip you to be able to Perform the work of service in which you were designed to perform. And there, there's a result to that. I mean, verse 12 continues on to the building up of the body of Christ. To the building up of the body of Christ is this idea that we all exist here to build one another up. We're not simply just here to evangelize. I mean, that's very important. We're not simply here to just go on missions. That's very important. But we're also here to continue building one another up. That's really part of the Great Commission. You save and you help sanctify. You train. You build up the body of Christ. But then verse 13, here's the goal. The goal of all this is that until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, that means that we are to continue building one another up. We are, continue, we are to continue helping each other grow so that we grow into the image of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That we do that in our individual walks, but we also do that as a church body. We grow in our maturity. We grow in our understanding. We grow in our knowledge of God's will. But then look at the result in verse 14. Here's the result. As a result, we are no longer to be children, Tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. This is referring to all the underhanded ways that Satan and the world system will try to unseat you from your trust in God and his world and his word. This, this world is designed to help distract you from your devotion to God. It is, to, is designed to distract you from your devotion to Jesus Christ. It is to distract you from thinking that God's word is sufficient and instead thinking that you need this and this and this and this. Oh, beloved, at the end of the day, we don't need any of those, those things that the world proposes to us. All we need is the word of God for our spiritual growth, for our understanding. And similarly, let me read for you Colossians 2, verse 8. Colossians 2, verse 8 See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. So, the Word of God, as we grow in the Word of God, as we become edified, as we become mature, we start to learn to be discerning. We can discern what is truly of God and what is not of God. One of the greatest tragedies in this country. I mean, from the outside, a lot of people think that America is a Christian nation. Let me tell you, it is anything but a Christian nation. You know, you, you've got books written called Your Best Life Now, which, if you understand the scriptures, look, Jesus came so that we would believe in Him, that we would have what? eternal life right that's that's not looking towards this life that's looking towards our future time with God in heaven for all eternity our best life is not now and when you see a book titled your best life now that should be an immediate tip-off that should be an immediate red flag that that title is distinctly unbiblical and yet instead of being rejected as a Christian book that book was the bestseller, best-selling Christian book in America for two straight years we have no discernment But we need to have discernment. And you would have discernment by reading the word of God, by understanding it, by growing according to it. Now, let me take you to one last passage. Turn with me to the book of Acts. The book of Acts, chapter 17, verses 10 and 11. You may recognize this passage. This is where we find out about the noble Bereans. You hear it all all the time. Let's be a noble Berean. Let's be a noble Berean. But let's take a look at this. Again, and, and see what we can pull from this passage. Because certainly this is what I desire of all of you. This is what I desire for each and every one of you that you would be like a noble Berean. Acts chapter 17, verses 10 and 11 read this The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now, these were more noble minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Now, consider this for a moment, because the implications here are enormous. Who wrote the book of Acts? Who was the human author that wrote the book of Acts? Luke, right? Luke wrote the book of Acts. OK, but who was working through Luke to write Acts? God, right? God, the Holy Spirit, was working through Luke. Okay, great. So God wrote Acts just like he wrote the entire Bible, right? How did Paul get commissioned to be an apostle? Who commissioned him? God, specifically Jesus Christ, right? Jesus blinded Paul on his road to Damascus, blinded him, converted him, turned him to apostle, specifically an apostle to the Gentiles. So Paul was this great man of God sent to bring the gospel everywhere he he went. We know that from his letters. We know that from the book of Acts. That's why we read so much about him throughout the New Testament. But look again at verse 11. How were the Bereans described? They were what? Noble minded. Why? Well, because they received the word with what? Great eagerness. They received the word with great eagerness. And what else did they do? They received the, great, with the word with great eagerness. And what else did they do? They, they did what? They examined what? The scriptures daily. Why? To see whether these things were so. Now, what were these things? To see that whether these things were so, it was referring to what Paul had been teaching them, Right? So they were taking the words of Paul, who was commissioned by God as an apostle. Paul was this great man of God. But in this verse, God refers to the Bereans as being noble-minded, specifically because they not only received Paul's teaching with great eagerness, but they examined God's word to validate his teachings. In other words, God calls you noble if you hold even the great apostle Paul accountable to the standard of God's word. Nobody is above the standard of scripture and everyone should be held accountable. You realize what that means for us here at Western Avenue Baptist Church. If you want to be noble-minded in the eyes of God, and I certainly want you to be, you need to examine the scriptures to validate everything that even I teach you. I want for all of you to be able to know what you believe and why you believe it and where you would go to be able to defend it. I don't want you to say that I believe something simply because Pastor Ecke taught it. You need to even validate what I say according to the scriptures. That is the gold standard. That is the standard of truth that's going to protect us from those who are heretics, from those who are subtly looking to to get behind through the back door and, and become, you know, disguised as angels of light, but seeking to deceive and and to unseat us from our faith. Now, these three truths of Scripture that I talked about, the perfection, the sufficiency and the authority, we we can refer to them as this. There's the, the fact that it is perfect. That's the inerrancy of Scripture. The fact that it is fully sufficient for salvation and sanctification, we often refer to that as the sufficiency of Scripture. The fact that it is authoritative over any other source of truth, that is the authority of Scripture. So between inerrancy, sufficiency, and authority, we have three pillars that are crucial for your understanding and the benefit that you get from the Word of God. These three pillars of truth are what we need to ensure that Scripture is never unwittingly compromised in our minds or in our hearts. Now, there are also many other verses that I would have loved to have covered, but let me just give you a few other verses. Just write these down. I'll read them off to you. Proverbs 3, 5 reads, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. I love that verse. Do not lean on your own understanding, but trust the Lord with all of your heart. There's 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Peter writes, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. And in Second Peter, same chapter, chapter one, verses 20 and 21, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now, if you're here this morning and you do not know the Lord, what you have heard is what God testifies himself about his own word. It is his word that is perfect. It is his word that is able to lead us to Christ. It is his word that speaks with the power and authority needed to call you to repentance. It is his word that testifies of everyone, that there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. It's in his word that we read, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it's also in his word that we read that for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It is this free gift of God that is made available through God's own son, Jesus Christ. You bring nothing to the table. There's nothing you can do to earn your salvation or to earn favor from God. Your sinfulness is seen by God and exposed by his perfect word. What you need to do is to repent of your sins and confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Romans 9 and 10 read, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. And this gospel is not merely just an invitation. Often we present it like it's just an invitation, but this is the mandate of God. Acts 17 verses 30 and 31, Paul says this, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Do not delay in responding to this call of God to repentance. Do not delay. You can make that decision right now. You can make that confession of faith right now. Come and talk to me following the service. If you have any questions, if you feel this need, this urging, you can talk to any of the deacons. They're going to come up and serve um, communion fairly soon. But don't leave without uh, speaking to one of us if you feel that need. Now, for the rest of us, it is my sincere hope that you're both encouraged and convicted over the importance of holding fast to the Word of God. Spend time in God's Word every day. Read it. Study it. Listen to it proclaimed. Meditate upon it. Memorize it. Apply it. You see, the Word of God is the foundation of truth for the church, for each and every believer. It is your weapon of spiritual warfare to help win the lost and to defend you against the attacks of Satan. It will help you discern truth from error. It will inform your behavior, your actions, and your service. It will grow you into the image of God's own Son, Jesus Christ. It will make you useful for God's purposes. And ultimately, it will allow you to stand before God as someone who need not be ashamed but it is approved because you can accurately handle the word of truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time that we've had in your word. Uh, we pray that for each and every one of us um, that we will receive this reminder, this exhortation of just how important your word is in our life. Father, I pray for each and every one of us that we would examine our lives to determine the influences that have been informing our decisions our behavior our choices father i pray that we would not assume that we know your will but that we would carefully examine the scriptures that we would even examine the scriptures for even everything that is taught here from this pulpit so that we may too be approved before you not needing to be ashamed accurately handling your word of truth